Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. If you have trusted Jesus Christ for the gift of eternal life, you have been forgiven. Now, that doesn't mean you're perfect, as you well know. As a matter of fact, you may sin again. Well, the scripture teaches that if, as a Christian, you sin and confess that sin, God is faithful and just to forgive you of that sin. So I suspect that most of the people listening to me today would say that they have been forgiven. Either they've come to Christ and have been forgiven, or they've confessed a sin and they've been forgiven. What I would like to suggest we do today is simply contemplate that for a minute. You know, what's there to contemplate? It's real simple, isn't it? As a Christian sins and Christians confess and God forgives. What's there to contemplate? It's real simple, isn't it? Well, in one sense, yes. In another sense, maybe we need to think about this a bit. At least that was the conclusion of David after he sinned, and he wrote a song about it. We call it a psalm. Matter of fact, he wrote several psalms just pertaining to that particular subject. The one I want us to look at today is one that he wrote after he confessed. And looking back on the situation, well, I would say he was just contemplating what happened. It would be good for us to do the same. So will you turn with me to Psalm 32? What should you contemplate when you think about forgiveness? Well, this psalm tells us. David says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groanings all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity have I not hidden. I said, I will confess transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you. In a time when you may be found, surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place, you shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me from songs, uh, with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, 
else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, you righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Now, clearly, David is dealing with a sin he committed. Almost everybody who grapples with the Psalms conclude that this is the sin that David committed with Bathsheba. And it was pretty hideous. He not only committed adultery with Bathsheba, he then tried to cover it up, and that didn't work. And then he arranged for her husband, Uriah, to be killed. So David was guilty of adultery and murder. Matter of fact, I heard an Old Testament scholar once say, in that episode, David broke five of the Ten Commandments. He committed murder, he committed adultery, he stole that which didn't belong to him, he lied, and he coveted. So if any of those apply to you, this passage is related to that. But other sins, no doubt, are included. Now, after that, David wrote Psalm 51, which is the psalm we normally think of as a psalm where he is confessing his sin with Bathsheba. Uh, after that, he wrote Psalm 32. Psalm 51 is his more direct confession of his sin. Psalm 32 is more a contemplation of what happened after it was all over. Now, I usually take passages like this and go through them verse by verse, but uh, in this case, I'm going to shuffle the deck a little bit. And rather than start at verse 1 and slowly walk through the passage, I'm going to start by looking at the problem. And the problem is, David, right at the beginning of this passage, discusses the consequences of his sin. So let me start with that, and then we will back up and uh, go through the rest of the passage. So look at verse 3. He says, When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Now, he's discussing what happened as a result of his sin. He says in verse 3, when I kept silent. In other words, when he first sinned, he did not confess it. He kept silent about it. And that, by the way, was a long period of time. <clears throat> Some estimate that it was a year before he confessed his sin. And he didn't do it until he was called on the carpet by a prophet who went to see him, stuck his finger in his face, told a story, and David wanted the person in the story to be punished, and the prophet stuck his finger in David's face and said, Thou art the man. Well, up until that, David was silent. He didn't say anything about his sin to the Lord or probably to anybody else. Now what happens is David says, When I was silent, when I didn't confess, here's what happened. My bones grew old through my groanings all the day long. 
In other words, he was silent. He tried to sweep the sin under the carpet, so to speak. Perhaps he rationalized, you know, time heals all things. I'll get over this in due time. But his stubborn refusal was against God. It was against his own best interest. And as a result, it affected his body. Did you see that? When I kept silent, my bones grew old. He is talking about the direct effect of sin on the body. He became a physical wreck. It was all caused by this anguish he was feeling over his sin. Could sin affect your body? Real simple illustration is if you drink too much, you get cirrhosis of the liver. But that isn't the kind of thing this is talking about. This is talking about the anguish that he felt. He knew the Lord. He had walked with the Lord. And now he had sinned. And he felt that anguish of soul. And he says that affects the body. Now let me let you in on a little secret. As a human being, you have emotions and a mind and a will and a body. So we normally think of the mind, emotions, and will as the soul, and that soul is put in a body. Now here's the little secret. They affect each other. What affects your mind affects your emotions. What affects your emotions affects your mind. What affects your emotions affects your body. What affects your body affects your emotions. They are so intertwined, they catch each other's diseases. So you may think you're getting away with it, but it is affecting you in ways you might not be aware of at the moment, but will catch up with you eventually. It'll affect your body. But it also affected, of all things, his energy. Look at verse 4. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. He's just poetically describing the fact that he was drained of energy. He had internal grief and external weakness. It affected him physically, emotionally, as well as spiritually. His strength was zapped. Nothing worked out anymore. His carefree days had vanished. And he just wasn't as strong as he used to be. Now, I find this passage of Scripture just staggering. For this reason, and you've heard me refer to this verse in the past, I found myself referring to it several times just recently. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that there were Christians who were living an unloving life at the Lord's table. And Paul says because of that, some were, get this, weak, some were sick, and some were asleep, which is a biblical way of saying a saint is dead. They had a premature physical death. It's chastisement. But what intrigues me is that the New Testament says a believer today can live in sin 
or commit sin and tolerate it, and it caused weakness and sickness. Well, that's the kind of thing David is describing in this passage. His sin affected him physically, emotionally, as well as spiritually. Trying to illustrate this, one Bible teacher told of buying his wife a rubber plant. He said that it had broad leaves that seemed to spread out with welcoming gestures. But one morning he noticed the foliage was drooping in a state of dejection. He didn't say anything to his wife, but wondered what happened. When he came home later, that plant was completely transformed. It looked as hardy as it had done the day he bought it. A healthy color had returned to its leaves, and they were extended outward once again. When he asked his wife about it, she told him she'd read an article that, about how to keep plants fresh and alive. According to the, the article, she said, dust accumulating on the leaves would actually prevent light from getting to them. So it is necessary to wipe them off regularly. So all she did was wipe the dust off, and the plant was able to receive light, and it returned to its original state. And the Bible teacher went on to say, the dust particles of sin can prevent the light of God's word from entering the soul. Just like that plant lost its vitality, so a saint will lose his or her vitality because of sin. So in this part of the passage, David is simply confessing his sin in terms of the consequences of the sin. Now, let's pick it up at verse 5, where he then actually confesses. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgive the iniquity of my sin, Selah. Now, in the first part, uh, the way I'm dividing the passage, he deals with the consequences of sin. Now, in verse 5, he is simply confessing his sin. But I want, to, I want you to notice the way he does it. He says, I acknowledge my sin, my iniquity, and my transgressions. In other words, he uses three different words to describe his sin. One is iniquity. Uh, some suggest that probably is emphasizing the guilt aspect of sin. He calls it a transgression. Uh, that means to pass over a boundary. Some suggest it includes the idea of rebellion. Then he calls it sin. And as you know, that means to miss the mark. So these are all the different ways to describe sin. In one case, you missed the mark, you didn't go far enough. In the other case, it was a transgression, you went too far over the boundary, and the result was you felt guilt. So the point is, he's just using several different words to describe his sin. And then he says, 
I did not hide my iniquity. Now, he just said, when I hid it, what happened? Now he says, I quit hiding it. I just came to grips with, I had sinned. There's no attempt anymore to gloss over it, or to mitigate it, or to excuse it. He just says, I sinned, period. And as soon as he did that, it says at the end of verse 5, you forgive the iniquity of my sin. Apparently, as soon as he confessed, he immediately, instantly had the assurance that the Lord had forgiven his sin. Because God promised to do that, and David accepted his promise. Now I want to point out something that is incredibly simple. God forgives guilty sinners when they confess their guilt. Now why is that significant? Well, let me illustrate. Many years ago, a prince was traveling through France when he stopped at a prison. The authorities at the prison decided that they were going to let this prince let one prisoner go free. So the prince went from cell to cell and asked all the prisoners why they were there. He listened intently to what they had to say. He said uh, he heard this kind of thing, that, uh, well, I was, uh, I-, I was really innocent. I got framed. Uh, another said, uh, I suffered an injustice. Another said that um, he was oppressed. And finally, he came to a fellow who said this. He said, I'm guilty. I have committed the crime, and I have nothing to say except I deserve to be here. Now, this is what the prince said to him. He listened to him, and then he said in a voice that all could hear, you despicable wretch. What a pity you have to be among these many honest men. Your own confession is bad enough that indicate you would corrupt them all. You must not stay here another day. (laughs) And he turned him loose. Now, the point is, God forgives guilty sinners who acknowledge their sin. Not those who practice rationalization, make excuses, or shift the blame. Let me say that same thing a slightly different way. God does not forgive rationalization. God forgives sin. God does not forgive excuses. God forgives sin. God does not forgive blame shifting. God forgives sin. So all this verse is telling us David quit playing games. He quit hiding it. He quit making excuses. He quit rationalizing. And he said, I'm Guilty. And the Lord said, forgiven. That is what we need to contemplate concerning our forgiveness. Now, uh, David goes into a bit of detail talking about the fact that, well, God forgave him. So what's going on, I started with the consequences of sin and then the confession of sin 
Now I want us to just focus for a minute on the fact that God forgave him. Let's call it the cleansing of sin. Go back to verse 1. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, what is interesting is that the same three words that he used to describe his sin, he uses in these two verses to say that's what the Lord forgave him of. Look at verse 1. He forgave my transgression, whose sin, and in verse 2, iniquity. So he has confessed using the same words that the, he used to describe the sin in the first place. Now, let me tell you what's really, really interesting about this passage of Scripture. Uh, <clears throat> I've often wondered what it's going to be like when I get to heaven and can have a chance to talk to the Apostle Paul. There are several passages of Scripture I'd like to talk to him about. <laughs> you have any passages like that? I have one or two. Why in the world did you say that? And he's not alone. I got a couple of other people I'd like to talk to. So what, how would you like to have, if I could resurrect Paul, have him tell you what he thought of this verse? Would you like that? Would that be interesting? Guess what? Paul quotes these two verses. And I think the way he applies it is just really interesting. Matter of fact, this is a lesson in Bible study. Turn to Romans chapter 5. I'm sorry, Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Now let me explain something while you're finding that passage. <clears throat> in the book of Romans, Paul starts out in the first three chapters saying, we're all sinners. At the end of chapter 3, he says, the penalty is death, and God has justified us freely by his grace in giving his son to die for our sins. In chapter 4, he then says, the one thing you must do to be forgiven is to trust Jesus Christ. Over and over, he's making the point that justification is by faith. That's the point of Romans chapter 4. He starts out saying, well, look at Abraham. And he quotes Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Abraham, he says, got saved by faith. Then he quotes David. And that brings us to verse 6 of Romans 4. Just as David also described the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness, look at this, apart from works. Did you see that little phrase? Yes. Apart from works. Now keep that in mind and then read verses 7 and 8, which is a quotation of Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. Did you see what happened? Notice carefully. 
Look at the text carefully. What is not mentioned in Psalm 32 that David said would be mentioned? You didn't get it. All right, start over. Go back to verse 6. Just as David also described the blessedness of the man to whom God, impute, does, to whom God imputes righteousness. What? What? All right, now keep that phrase in mind and listen to Psalm 32. Blessed is, are those to whom the lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered, whose... Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. Where in those two verses does it say anything about works? It doesn't. Ooh, is that interesting. This uh, is really a liberating exercise. Paul means just exactly what that text means, but he saw something in that passage that when I read it, I didn't see. He said, if you are say you're forgiven by simply confessing, then that means you don't have to do any work. Right? That's what Paul said. And he applies it to justification. So, to clear it all up, here's what's going on. Paul is using Psalm 32 properly. And he's applying it to justification. So, hear me. Hear me carefully. You've heard me say this a thousand times, some of you. Some of you have only heard me say it once or twice. But hear me. We're sinners. Right? Jesus died for our sin. Right? Arose from the dead. We just celebrated that Easter. Right? So the Bible says if you simply trust Christ, you are forgiven and given eternal life. John 3.16, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him. Believe in him. That's trust. You're trusting in him. So you come to Christ and you say, I'm a sinner. I'm guilty but I believe you died for me. I believe you arose from the dead, and I trust what you did. Now, what does that mean? I'm not doing anything. I can't do anything because the penalty of sin is death. Christ paid the penalty. I don't do something. I trust what he did. We got it? So that's, what Paul, that's the point Paul is making, that I am justified by faith without me doing anything else apart from works. I don't have to live a righteous life. I don't have to live a religious life. I'm trusting Jesus Christ, period. Got it? Now let me tell you the other point Paul makes in Romans chapter 4. We don't have time to go into it now, but it's important. He says that what this amounts to is believing the promise of God. He makes a big issue out of that. There is a sense in which salvation is simply believing the promise of God. Did God promise that if you trusted Jesus Christ, he would give you eternal life? Yes. That, that, that's clear? Yes. 
What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Is that a promise? A promise? How do you know you're saved? You believe God's promise. So whether or not you're saved, if you've trusted Christ, depends on the promise of God, right? Matter of fact, um, I've had people question their salvation. And, and I say to them, it, 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 God promised you eternal life. And you, have you trusted Christ? And I check them out on all that. And they say, yeah, then, then you've got to take God at his word. you just got to believe the promise, right? And then I say to them, are you an American citizen? And they say, yeah. Say, prove it. How do you know you're an American citizen? Well, I was born in America. How do you know that? Well, my mother told me. You're trusting your mother on your citizenship? That's all you got? Oh, no, 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 no. I, I, I got a birth certificate. Oh, you got a piece of paper. You're, 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 you're telling me you know you're an American citizen because you got a piece of paper? That's all? Will that do? Yeah, that'll do. That'll do. Well, I'm a citizen of heaven. How do you know? I got a piece of paper. <laughs> the Word of God. Okay? Now, that's what's going on in this passage. Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven. Blessed. The Hebrew word translated blessed means happy. It's the same word that appears in Psalm 1-1. Happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, that passage. So, if you have trusted Jesus Christ plus nothing, you can say, I have eternal life. Period. End of report. And that should make you happy. One commentator said, the forgiven sinner ought to be filled with exuberant gladness. Yes. There was a counselor at a radio ministry who was getting letters, and a lot of those letters were people grappling with whether or not they were forgiven. And some of them would say that uh, they confessed their sins a thousand times. And that particular counselor said to them, uh, said they confess their sins a thousand times and I tell them to confess it once and then thank God a thousand times they're forgiven. Amen. Now take God at his word. Amen. You know, I, um, I, this is a subject near and dear to my heart. I love talking about the gospel and seeing people come to Christ. And one of the ways I've done this especially in this church, is instead of giving an invitation to come forward, I've, I've said at the end of those kind of messages, bow your head and pray. Tell God that you want to trust Christ. You've seen me do it. I did it last week. Every time I've done that, as far as I can remember, without exception, I've had people raise their hand that I led to Christ Amen. privately. Now, what's going on? I tell people to trust Christ, and they have to do it again. All right? Hear me. You only need to do that once. 
to know that you have eternal life. So if you have trusted Christ plus nothing without works, then you have the right and the authority to take God at his word. So there is the cleansing of sin, the forgiveness of sin. You can rest upon the promise of God. Now, I began all this by saying that we ought to contemplate forgiveness and that that's really a simple assignment. I sin, I confess, God forgives. And that's basically what I've done so far. Only I started with the consequences of sin, which is I sin. Then I dealt with the confession of sin, and then I dealt with the cleansing of sin. That all is pretty simple. That's straightforward. But there's something else going on in this passage. Paul, I'm sorry, David is not done. He then starts talking to other people. Look, let's go down to verse 6. We've already looked at the first five verses. Go down to verse 6. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near you. Now, David is talking to the Lord, but he's talking to other people. He's no longer confessing his sin. He's now, and from this verse to the rest of the passage, giving counsel to other people. And so he's saying, in essence, in verse 6, you need to do this while the Lord may be found, and the idea is do it quickly. Keep short accounts. And in so doing, then you will avoid the flood of great waters. By doing it quickly, you will avoid the calamity that I went through. That's basically the idea. And then David says you, to the Lord in verse 7, You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with the songs of deliverance. Ah, he's saying, he, in this context, he's, he keeps talking to other people. Uh, but he's saying uh, the Lord is the hiding place. The Lord preserves me yeah. from trouble. All that trouble was mentioned prior. And you surround me with the songs of deliverance. Yeah. Wow. By the way, uh, Charles Wesley wrote a hymn called Jesus Lover of My Soul. And he based it on verses 6 and 7 of this psalm. The words say, while the near waters roll, while the tempest still is high, hide me, O my Savior, hide me. And he drew it from these verses. David goes on. He says uh, in verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you shall go. I will guide you with my eye. Now, some commentators say that David is still speaking here, but it's possible that the Lord has intervened. And I tend to think that's the case. So he says, the Lord will instruct you. The Lord will teach you. The Lord will guide you by his eye. Now, the Lord doesn't want you as a Christian to sin and confess it, knowing you'll be forgiven, so that you can go back and sin again. What he wants to do is have you confess it, accept his forgiveness, so that he can instruct you, teach you, and guide you with his eye. 
What does that mean? Well, you have a mother. You ever have your mother guide you with her eye? It's that look. You get that look and you know you are in trouble. Or you're about to be if you continue down that path you're going. But in the context of this passage, the Lord wants to instruct you with his eye. And earlier in, the, in this passage, David says, your hand was heavy upon me. So you even get the instruction from the gentle glance of the Lord's eye, the gentle guidance of a look, or the heavy discipline of a hand. So he's saying, look, let me give you some advice. Deal with the sin and then, then listen to the Lord and you'll avoid all the calamity that I went through. That's what he's saying. Uh, so I think it's interesting that in what David has done is he's now turned his attention to other people. Let me share with you what I've learned the hard way. One Author said, the natural response of forgiveness is to help others by sharing one's own experience and specifically by counseling others in trouble. Look at verse 9. Don't be like the horse or the mule which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle as they will not come near you. Don't be like a horse. The horse was restless to move ahead without a command. Don't be like a mule. They're notorious for their stubbornness, They're refusing to even go in the way they are directed. So in that sense, the horse and the mule are different. The horse wants to go without a command, and the mule wants to go even when you don't want to go when you do give him a command. And he says both of them need to be controlled by a bit and bridle. Don't be Boy, could I be tempted. <laughs> you got the message. It's in the book. <laughs> right? All right. In other words, be sensitive to the Lord. Don't be stubborn. Don't be rebellious. Because uh, that will only lead to harsher trials. A flood of water. You avoid all that calamity. And he goes on, and he says in verse 10, Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts the Lord, mercy shall surround him. And again, he's making the point, don't do what I did. I was surrounded by many troubles, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Don't do that. Don't be stubborn like a mule. Man, the scripture is so plain. <laughs> I mean, how could you get any blunter? One more. He says in verse 11, Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Now, here's the counsel. If you've sinned and confessed it and accept God's forgiveness, go tell somebody else about forgiveness. Because two things can avoid all the sorrow and pain I went through, and you'll be happier. You believe that? Amen. I think it's so interesting. 
I don't know how many people I've talked to and said, why are you doing that? They say, because it makes me happy. In the first place, there may be an element, a small element of truth to that, but you've mistaken happiness from pleasure. The book of Hebrews says there is pleasure in sin. Did you hear that? There's pleasure in sin. Sin isn't all painful. If it were painful, nobody would do it. The reason they do it is pleasure, right? But the Bible says that's only for a short season. Happiness, from a biblical point of view, comes from the Lord. Matter of fact, I think the biblical word happiness is not like the English word happiness or the English idea today in America. In America, the idea is if my happenings are going my way, I'm happy. If my happenings are not going my way, I'm sad, and I'm going to go do something to make me happy. That's not the biblical concept. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Happiness in the Bible is more accurately described as joy. It's an inner joy that circumstances can't destroy. So that the Bible says, count it all joy when you fall into various kinds of trial. Only a Christian walking with the Lord can know that joy that comes even in the midst of a trial. So David is saying, hear me, hear me. I confess my sin and I was forgiven and I want to encourage you to do the same thing because I know that if you keep down that road, there's sorrow and if you go down the road, I'm suggesting there is joy. So there's either going to be sadness or gladness, you choose. Wow. That's a powerful passage, isn't it? Yes, it is. Should we contemplate forgiveness? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And if you contemplate it, what do you conclude? Go tell somebody. You go tell somebody. <laughs> Thank you. That's exactly right. If you contemplate forgiveness and you realize what's really, really happening, you will want to go tell somebody else. Yes. Don't do what I did. Go the Lord's way. You'll have a whole lot happier life. All right. You got the message? Only thing I could add to that, do it quickly. Keep short accounts. And don't be like a, well, you got the message. All right. My point is you need to deal with the sin. And as soon as possible. The longer you put this off, the worse it gets. So deal with it. And then accept the fact that you were forgiven. Now I want to I conclude by harping on that for just a minute. Because I think I've talked to some people who are stubborn and don't confess. And then I've talked to some people who confess and don't accept the fact they're forgiven. The whole point of this is, blessed is the man. You can say, I am forgiven. If the scripture teaches anything, it teaches that. So, you need to accept that. Martin Luther said this is one of the greatest of the Psalms. When asked 
which of the Psalms he thought was best. And by the way, he taught Romans and he taught Galatians and he taught the Psalter. He said, he called them the Pauline Psalms, which he meant uh, those Psalms where there is confession. And when asked which ones he had in mind, he said 32, 51, 130, and 143. For they all teach that forgiveness of our sins comes without the law, without works, to the man who believes, and therefore I call them the Pauline Psalms. So, you need to recognize that you're forgiven and accept the joy of forgiveness. One author said, happiness is to be forgiven. It is an emotion that defies description. It is the relief of an enormous burden lifted, of a debt canceled, of a conscience at rest. Guilt is gone. Warfare is ended. Peace is enjoyed. To David, it meant the forgiveness of his great transgression, the covering of his sin, the non-imputation of his iniquity, and the cleansing of his spirit from deceit. To the believer today, it means more than mere covering of the sin. That was an Old Testament concept of atonement. In this age, the believer knows that his sins have been put away completely and buried forever in the sea of God's forgetfulness. So, you need to remember, if you struggle with whether or not you're forgiven, you need to know Psalm 32. Augustine uh, loved this psalm. He set it above his bed that he might see it upon wakening every moment, every morning. And when he was dying, he asked that the penitential psalms be written and placed where he could see them. Now that gave me an idea. If you struggle with whether or not you're forgiven, trust Christ. And if after that you've sinned, confess the sin. And if you aren't sure you're forgiven, write Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, on a 3 by 5 card. And put it on the mirror in the bathroom. So that every morning when you look in the mirror, you see Psalm 32. And then put it on another 3 by 5 card and put it in your car. So that, yeah, on your desk, that's a good idea. So that every day you see, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Blessed, happy, you can be happy. The sin is forgiven. That's the point of this passage. But there's a second. And that is, go tell somebody. Go tell somebody. Are you forgiven? Is there a joy in that? Then share the joy. Right? You say, well, you know, in this day and time, people don't like for you to talk about religion. I mean, it's not politically correct to talk about religion, right? That's true, and it's going to get worse. Okay? Matter of fact, I heard of an article that was written recently where the guy said all Christians ought to be put in jail. It's going to get worse. That isn't going to take my joy away, and it isn't going to shut me up. 
And that's what we ought to do. We ought to go tell them. The man who led me to Christ was the most zealous witness for Christ I have ever known. He witnessed to everything that moved. I mean, I, he and I went to Romania when it was still behind the Iron Curtain for two weeks. And he witnessed to every human that came across our path, and he didn't offend a single one of them. It was a gift. I just marveled at the way he did it. And what he would say, he's with the Lord now, what he would say is this, give them an opportunity to reject. Maybe they don't know. So go tell them and give them an opportunity to go to heaven. Doesn't matter what they say or even what they think. Just give them an opportunity. So contemplate the fact that you were forgiven and rejoice in your forgiveness and go tell somebody else. Let's pray. Now maybe there's somebody here who hasn't trusted Christ. That's what you need to do. If, you don't, if you're not sure you're going to heaven, tell God you want to trust Christ to get you to heaven. And maybe there's somebody here who's living in sin and you just need to get right with the Lord. And this is a time for you to confess it and deal with the Lord. Father, speak. May the Spirit of God have liberty in this place to speak directly to the hearts of people who need this message. In Jesus' name. Amen.